Parshas Tetzave is a very interesting parsha, but probably many of us who will go through the parsha will not see so many aspects of it that seem to be relevant to us in any way. Most of the parsha is taken up talking about the clothing of the coin Gadol, the clothing of the coin Hedyot, and how exactly they set up the Mishkan. So for most of us, I would venture to say that really has no significance and no relevance at all. But what I find very important when we learn through Chumash and when we go through any part of Torah is to realize that there is sometimes something that we can learn from one of the halachas along the way, even if it may not seem relevant to us on the surface level, there is something we can extract from the halacha and we can understand how to apply it to another area of our lives as well. What I'd like to talk about today is something that is relevant to malacha on Shabbos, that much of the discussion comes from today's parsha, from this week's parsha, parsha's to Sabbath. And the reason why it's very important is because we have so many different technological advances in our generation, so many different things that we use. Just a simple example is Alexa and Google Play, all these different, no, not the wrong word, whatever it's called. The Alexa of Google, the Google version of Alexa, Google Play. No? All the different things that we have, and so many malachas that can happen in so many unusual ways from the way that malacha was originally done. So when you go back to the Aseras Adibros and you ask yourself, what did the Torah say was prohibited on Shabbos? It's very simple. Lo sasa kal malacha. And we have an outline of 39 different categories of malacha. And from there we have subcategories and sub of subcategories. But all of that is very clearly defined. But I would, I would say that any of us who would try to put into any of those categories much of the technology that we engage with today, you would have a very difficult time figuring out where perhaps something fits and where perhaps it does not. And that is why I'd like to talk about this today because what we find as a very unusual source from our Parsha when describing the clothing of the Kohen Gadol is where we extract an extremely relevant and important value to the question of Malacha on Shabbos and technology. So let's begin with the following. Where are all the Malachas of Shabbos learned from? The Gemara tells us in Masecha Shabbos, all of them are derived from Malachas HaMishkan, which means there were many different activities that were necessary to have a functioning Mishkan come together. And whatever it was that was done in the days of Moshe Rabbeinu to build, construct, and have a functioning Mishkan on a day-to-day basis, all of those activities are what is prohibited for us to do on Shabbos. That is what the Gemara learns. Again, a long story in the Gemara Masechah Shabbos to explain what is the correlation and why should we learn from that. doesn't matter right now, but that is what the Gemara assumes we learn from the Hakamas HaMishka. Now the question is, if you look in Parshas Vayakel, which is not our Parsha, we're going to read that in a few weeks, but in Parshas Vayakel, the Torah there tells us that uh, B'Tzalel, who was the one who was tasked with being the one who was going to construct the entire Mishkan. Moshe Rabbeinu was not the one who did it. He hired, or he singled out B'Tzalel to be the one to build the Mishkan. And the Torah there says that HaKadosh Baruch Hu gave him Ruach Elokim, Bechachma Besvuna Vadasa Bechamalacha. When you have a contractor come to build a home for you, come to do some work in your house, you don't say that the contractor is filled with the grace of Hashem and he knows all the secrets of the world. You just say, he went to school, he knows how to build, he knows how to do construction, and he does a great job, or he does a horrible job, whatever it might be. But you don't assume that somebody who's involved in construction has this magical power inside of them. So what does it mean when the Torah says that HaKadosh Baruch Hu gave B'Tzalel some kind of extra special ability, Ruach HaLokim B'Chachma what is that a reference to? Says the Gemara, building the Mishkan was not simple. 
building the Mishkan was not the same as building an addition or some kind of construction as we know it. Of course, if that's all it was, you didn't need any of this extra special power. You just went to school for it. You knew how to build, how to take hammer and nails, how to take screws and a screwdriver, and you knew how to put everything together. That's not what the Mishkan was. That was part of it. But a lot more of it was something that was supernatural. And B'Tzalel was... It was necessary for B'Tzalel to have those extra special capacities, capabilities, to allow himself to be able to build the Mishkan the way it needed to be constructed. And Rashi over there, Masechus Brachos, explains that he knew certain secrets of the world. He knew the Sefer HaYitzira. And because of all of these things that he knew and the gifts that he was given by the Rebona Shalom himself, that is why he was able to build the Mishkan. Now the question is, if he used such an unusual, atypical, unconventional way to build... Normally, when I hire someone to build something, I don't expect they're going to take out the Sefer Yitzira and just make it happen. My assumption is they're going to take out a hammer and nails and build it for me. They're going to get the materials and put it together. So here, when we say that Pitzalo did everything in such an atypical fashion, does that mean that doing a malacha on Shabbos in an atypical fashion would be considered a malacha? If, in fact, we learn everything from what Pitzalo did, then maybe we should say that is direct parallel and that should define what is a malacha and what is not. That is generally not what we assume. You have to work out what the story with B'Tzalel is and how do we learn from him if in fact he himself did not do things in a natural way. But this leads us into our Parsha. The general issue regarding malacha that is performed in a supernatural way actually comes from our Parsha. Now, before we get into that discussion, ask yourself, when you talk to an Alexa, is that considered supernatural? No. No. If you would take someone from 100 years ago and show them what's going on, what would they say? Yes. So we've just become used to this. I don't understand anything about technology. I don't know how that works. But we all understand that there are people in our world who get it. 100 years ago, they have no understanding of this. The way they look at it is, this is supernatural. This is something, a God-given gift, that nobody understands how it could possibly work. It is something that is beyond nature. And that is the question, when you do something that seems to be supernatural, is that considered to be a malacha? And if it is, or if it is not, would this be considered the same as something that is supernatural? That's what we need to talk about. Okay? Fair? Makes sense? So let's begin. In Parshas Tetzaveh, look here number Gimel. The Torah tells us one of the kalim, one of the articles of clothing that the Kohen Gadol has to wear is a choshen hamishpat. He has to wear a breastplate. And as he has this plate on his chest, he has to have inside of it the Urim Vitumim. What exactly are the Urim Vitumim? Very good question. Very good question. The Gemara in Sanhedrin gets into a whole discussion to try to figure out exactly what it is, exactly what it's not. But the Torah says, Excuse me. The Torah says that the Urim Vitumim have to be worn by the Kohen Gadol at all times. V'nasa Aaron as mishpatei, as mishpat b'nei Yisrael aliba lefnei Hashem tamid. Tamid means he has to wear this all the time. Once again, the Urim Betumim are going to be mentioned much later on in Chumash and Parshas Pinchas. And if you look here in the second half of number Gimel, the Torah says, V'lefnei Elazar ha-Kohen ya'amod, v'sha'alo v'mishpat ha-Urim lefnei Hashem. Whenever there was a major question that faced the Jewish people, you would stand in front of the Urim Betumim and you would then present your question. Based on the Urim is the decision, is the determination whether or not somebody went out to battle or whether they stayed behind. So the Torah says, when the Jewish people were faced with a dilemma and they weren't sure, 
Should we go out to war or should we not? What exactly should be the tactics of this war? Should we go right? Should we go left? Should we be on the defensive or the offensive? All of those questions were presented to this miraculous Urim Vitumim. And that is where all of the uh, guidance was given to how they should proceed. Now, the Gemara Masechus Yuma discusses how exactly was the answer received on the Urim Vitumim. So the Gemara describes that on the Urim Vitumim there were a bunch of letters. So what happened? You asked the question. I want to know, should I go on a date tonight with this boy who called me, who texted me, and who wants to meet up with me? I'm not sure. Seems like a nice guy. I don't know if it's really Shaykh for me. I don't know if we really match up. I don't have anyone to call. So let me go ask the Urim Vitumim. Correct? So Shani goes and asks the Urim Vitumim. And what does the Urim Vitumim say? What does the Urim Vitumim answer? Great Shidduch? What is it going to say? It just starts talking to you? What happens? No? It would be nice. It would be nice if we had such a thing, correct? It would make life much easier. Like, who am I supposed to marry? And it would say, Yitzchak. All right, let me go find him. That would narrow down many of the options. But that's not what we have today. We also don't have Nevi'im, and we don't have Ruach HaKodesh. We don't have any of this. And that is why our lives have become a little bit harder to navigate. Because it used to be when somebody had a problem, they went to a Navi, they went to someone who had Ruach HaKodesh, and they figured it out. But now, we don't have that ability. So here, Shani's waiting to figure out whether she should go on a date. And she pres- I'm not going to pick on you. So Amanda's trying to figure out if she should go on a date. And we don't know what to do. So Amanda stands in front of the Urim Vitumim. Amanda, as part of the Mazinka Club, starts to figure out what should I do. And she stands in front of the Urim Vitumim and asks, should I go out with Yitzchak tonight? And what does the Urim Vitumim say? Letters what? What happens? So the Gemara is not exactly sure. The Gemara has a machlokas between Rabbi Yochanan and Reish Lakish. What happened? Did the letters start protruding? Like if the answer to that question is yes, then I guess the word Cain stuck out. Chafnun. That means go ahead. If the answer to that question is no, it's a horrible idea, really bad shidduch, then I guess the word lo would come through. So the Gemara has one opinion that maybe the osios were bole. Maybe those letters would just stick out and then you had to unscramble it and figure it out. Not every answer is going to be a two-word answer, a two-letter answer. It's not so simple. It's not Cain or Sometimes I have a complicated question. Amanda's in the middle of dating this boy, and it's already five, six times that they've gone out, and we come up with an issue, and we're not sure. So now I go to the Urim Vitum and I ask, what do I do about this question that we're facing? Oh, now the Urim Vitum has to give you a whole complicated answer. So it's not so simple to unscramble all the words. Not so clear exactly how the answers came about. The Gemara says perhaps... The letters did not only protrude, they didn't only stick out, they weren't just bole, but also they were mitztarev. Perhaps the letters actually moved places and unscrambled in order to be able to spell out the word that you needed to answer your question. Amazing. So here's the question. In the 1600s, there's a sefer that was written called Nachlas Binyamin. Nachlas Binyamin wants to know, well, what happens if somebody has a dilemma on Shabbos? The Gemara has a theoretical discussion between Rabbi Yochanan and Rabbi Shlakish. How were the questions answered with the Urim Vitumim? But here's my question. What if I had an issue that I was confronted with on Shabbos and I wanted the advice of the Urim Vitumim? Am I allowed to present a question to the Urim Vitumim on Shabbos when I know that the answer is going to be facilitated by some kind of strange letters protruding or mixing together or going out of place, is that considered to be a malacha on Shabbos to talk to the Urim Vitumim? So striking a match on Shabbos is called a malacha. Turning on the lights is called a malacha. 
talking to this miraculous plate is called a malacha? You would say no. Why not? Okay, and talking to Alexa. Yeah, but that, I mean, everything's different, but that's like some technology. Right, so how do you figure it out? How do you, how do you describe the difference? Um, Alexa, it's not from Hashem. It's Hashem gave the brains to some scientists who figured out how to make this. And to those who understand it, it makes a lot of sense. Urim Vitumim literally made no sense to anybody. Nobody knew how this worked. It was totally miraculous. So is that considered a malach or do you say no? That is God doing the whole thing. That's not me involved at all. This discussion about the Urim Vitumim on Shabbos then extended to a fascinating area of discussion that has nothing at all to do with the Urim Vitumim, but also very, very important to think about. So the Psukim tell us that Moshe Rabbeinu knew the last day of his life, which is unusual. Normally we don't know when the last day of a person's life is going to be. But Moshe Rabbeinu was told, Hein karvu lamus, which means today you're going to die. So, what would a person do on the last day of their life? Anybody here ever read Tuesdays with Mori? Right? So it's a whole book about what do I do at the end of my life? What do I think about? Most people don't think about it because we're going to live forever, especially at our age. We're invincible. We're going to go on. We're never going to die. It just won't happen. Great. But what about a person who knows it's your last day on this earth? So what would you think Moshe Rabbeinu would do on this last day on this earth? What would he be busy with? First of all, what day of the week did Moshe Rabbeinu even die? Anybody knows? Moshe Rabbeinu died on Shabbos. How do we know Moshe Rabbeinu died on Shabbos? That's a great question. So the Rishonim say Moshe Rabbeinu died on Shabbos. And that is the reason why on Shabbos afternoon we say Tzidkas Chatzedek by Mincha. Tzidkas Chatzedek is basically a Tzidok Adin. We are accepting the judgment of Hashem that he killed Moshe Rabbeinu, that he took the life of Moshe Rabbeinu, and we no longer have him. And that is why we say Tzidok Adin, which is also why the Arizal writes in one place, that is why on Shabbos afternoon we do not say Yismuchu B'malchuscha by Mincha. Yismuchu B'malchuscha is a beautiful tefillah. We're saying we should rejoice in the celebration of Shabbos and realize the kingship of Hashem, but we don't say it on Shabbos afternoon because we're not rejoicing, because we're a little bit tempered down because... Moshe Rabbeinu died on Shabbos afternoon. And because of that, we taper down our mood a little bit. We don't talk about Yismuchum Malchuscha. This is also why the Bnei Yisascha writes that on Shabbos afternoon by Shalashudis, we say the Kapitel Tehillim, Mizmar Ladavid Hashem Ro'i Lo Echzar. What does that have to do with anything at Shalashudis? The answer is, he says, once Moshe Rabbeinu died, you may be afraid. Who's going to lead us? What are we going to do? The answer is, don't worry. Everyone calm down. Hashem Ro'i Lo Echzar. I still have... The Rebona Shalolam, and even though Moshe Rabbeinu is no longer in the picture, we still have the Rebona Shalolam who guides our lives and who takes care of us and who is the one who we turn to for everything. So the Rishonim say that the assumption is, it seems to be, that Moshe Rabbeinu died on a Shabbos afternoon. And that is the question that Tosas asked in Masechus Menachos. If Moshe Rabbeinu died on Shabbos afternoon, what do we know about the last day of Moshe Rabbeinu's life? The Medrash tells us on the last day of Moshe Rabbeinu's life, he wrote 13 Sifrei Torah. 13 Sifrei Torah. Why did he write 13 Sifrei Torah? Says the Gemara, one Sefer Torah for each one of the 12 Shvatim. And an extra Sefer Torah, just to put aside to make sure in case somebody loses one, we have an extra Sefer Torah. So 13 Sifrei Torah. So ask the Baliatosis, how can Moshe Rabbeinu write 13 Sifrei Torah? Don't we know there's a Malach of Kosev on Shabbos? <coughs> so you don't like the question. You? It's okay? Fair question? So you could answer, 
It doesn't mean Moshe Rabbeinu wrote the 13th Sifrei Torah on the last day of his life. Come on. When was the last time you heard of anybody who can write one Sefer Torah in one day? It takes a year to write a Sefer Torah. It's very time-consuming. So what does it mean? Moshe Rabbeinu wrote 13 Sifrei Torah in one day? It doesn't mean the last day. It means toward the end of his life. But that's not the way the Rishonim understand it. The Rishonim say, Moshe Rabbeinu's life is very precise, very meticulous, very accurate. And it seems when we're told Moshe Rabbeinu on the last day of his life did that, it seems that this is exactly what he did. So then how do you understand this? How can Moshe Rabbeinu have done that? If, in fact, there's a malach of Kosev Shabbos. For anyone who just came in late and is wondering what's going on here, it's a great question. I'm not sure myself. Um, so the bottom line is, if he died on Shabbos, how did he write the Sifri Torah? Along comes the Chasam Sofer. Chasam Sofer was one of the greatest gedolim who lived in Europe, passed away in 1839. Chasam Sofer quotes from an earlier source from the Shalah Kaddish, Rabbi Shaya Halevi Horowitz, in the 1600s, quotes from the Shalah that the answer has to be that Moshe Rabbeinu wrote the Sifri Torah al Yidei Hashba'as HaKulmus. What does that mean? Kulmus is a quill. It means he said some kind of magical words, mystical words, Sefer Yitzira, whatever it may have been, and all of a sudden, the quill just started writing itself. All the Sifri Torah just started writing themselves. And that is the way Moshe Rabbeinu did it. After all, there is no natural way to explain how anybody can write 13 Sifri Torah in one day. So therefore, says the Shalah Kaddish, as quoted in the Chasam Sofer, it must be that Moshe Rabbeinu did something referred to as Hashbaz Hakumas. He figured out how to miraculously make the quill write itself. And that is the way all the Sifri Torah were written. And because he did this in a miraculous, mysterious, wondrous way, therefore it is not considered to be a Malacha on Shabbos. And what you see from there is that if somebody figures out how to do something on Shabbos in a completely miraculous way, we would consider that to be no malacha at all. For example, Rashi writes in Masecha Sanhedrin, what happens if you have all kinds of scary um, insects or you have a snake that is right near you? Now, I happen not to know how to catch snakes, so I'm terrified. So here I am outside in the backyard. I see a snake coming toward me. I don't know what to do. Ah, I have the right answer. Instead of running inside because I won't get there quickly enough, I'll just figure out how to take out my Sefer Yitzira book or my magical, mystical uh, powers that I have, and I'm just going to say whatever kind of conglomeration of words together, which is going to then miraculously kill the snake. Sounds great if you know how to do that. Rashi says, everybody knew how to do that in the days of the Gemara. That was like, that was child's play. That was easy. Rashi says, would I be allowed to do that on Shabbos? The answer is yes. Why? Let's see in Sanhedrin. That means if I have some kind of snake coming toward me and I'm afraid, I'm allowed to whisper some kind of thing. Says Rashi, I'm afraid that the snake is going to damage me. I'd be allowed to say some kind of magical words that have magical powers that are then going to get rid of the snake. Well, what do you mean? You're not allowed to kill a snake on Shabbos. You're not allowed to trap a snake on Shabbos. How can I do that? The answer is, well, you're doing it magically and therefore Rashi says wouldn't be considered or defined as a malacha at all. In fact, one of the Svarim has a discussion whether you're allowed to create a person, Ali they say for Yitzira on Shabbos. Many of us have heard the story, some say it's made up, some say it's real, about the Maharal and the Golam in Prague, right? You've heard the story? I don't know much about the history of it. The historians know a lot more. But basically, there is such a legend that there was a Golam in Prague. And the question then became, would you be able to create a Golam on Shabbos? Now, for those of us who don't know how to make a Golam, this is irrelevant, but... The question is, for those who do know and have a familiarity with how to do such a thing, would they be allowed to do so on Shabbos? Let's say, we're missing a minion. We need a tenth man for a minion. 
and we don't have a tenth man, so can you create one? Actually, that's not a good example because the Chacham City has a tshuva whether we can count a golem toward a minion or not. It's a good question. He says, perhaps we should say that you first need to be a human being, then we can say you're a man and you can count toward a minion. But if you're not even a human being, then we don't get started. Anyway, good question. Can I count for a minion? What? Can I count for a minion? Can I, it's, it's, it is amazing how these questions seem so wild and beyond, and beyond imagination, but then as you look at it, there's going to come a time when cloning is going to happen, when all these kinds of things, I assume, are going to happen. And uh, it's going to become very interesting. So take, for example, we know in Parshas B'Shalach, we read about the story of the man. So everybody's familiar that the Medrash says, yeah, whatever you wanted the man to taste like, it tasted like. So how did it become like that? So the man fell, and it was plain. Now I want it to become pizza. So how does it become pizza? It just tasted like pizza, or it actually changed texture and turned into pizza? If I have a pizza-flavored jelly bean, it doesn't taste as good as a slice of pizza. Big machlokas in our family, by the way. I'm just digressing for a minute. Ha, I would like to know. My wife's family calls it, I've never heard of such a thing until I got married, a piece of pizza. What is a piece of pizza? Isn't it a slice of pizza? What am I, anybody in the room ever refer to this as a piece of pizza? Explain yourself, please. I'm, I'm trying to understand this, yeah? It doesn't matter. I'm joking. But it's like a piece of cake. It's a piece of cake, but it's a slice. Right? You don't say a slice of cake. You say, can I have a piece of cake, but can you pass me a slice of pizza? No? Okay. Baruch Hashem, I'm happy to say, this is what my wife and I argue about. And Mirza Hashem, by all of you, you should only fight about such silly things. So the Chidah, the Chidah is a discussion. So here I am looking at the man and trying to figure out, hey, like today I'm interested in a slice or a piece of pizza, but I don't want it to just be like jelly beans that taste like pizza. That's gross. I want it to be the real experience, right? Not a pop sanity. I want it to be the real experience. So what do I do? How do I make it into pizza? How does that work? I just stare at it. Do I talk to it? Like, hey, go into the oven and become pizza. Do I just think about it and then it turns it like that's the question so this is a big discussion and after all whatever it is that I did was I allowed to do that on Shabbos the Torah says when it says that the man fell it says that you had to prepare everything before Shabbos whatever you wanted to bake you had to bake whatever you wanted to cook you had to cook before Shabbos began why how exactly did this happen I didn't have an oven so these are all very, very interesting questions. The question that we have to take from all of that is, is that relevant to our example of, let's say, the Alexa? So let's say I spoke to the man, and that would have been perhaps permissible because after all, that was miraculous. That was something that was so extraordinary, something that was so supernatural, beyond any reasonable person's understanding. So does that really connect to the story of our technology today? As you very correctly said before, probably not. Probably not. Why? Because there's a major distinction to be drawn. That is supernatural. That is miraculous. This is not supernatural. I happen not to understand the mechanics of how this works, but that's because I'm not a scientist. But somebody who does understand it, somebody who has a background in technology or in whatever field it is that's necessary to understand all of this, they get it. They don't look at this and say, this is miraculous. They look at this and say, this makes a lot of sense based on the rules and regulations of 
all that we know, this follows everything that we're familiar with. So let's see. Look at number above here. Rav Asher Weiss writes, when he talks about this entire issue, When we talk about cooking the man, that's not called a normal cooking. That's called some kind of miraculous cooking. Either I talk to the man, or I look at the man, or I think about the man, and I want it to taste like something, and then it happens. That's not called bishul. He says that is not an example to our case here because over there we're talking about. I'm sorry, I didn't even put it on here. But he says over there we're talking about somebody who's cooking in such a supernatural way. But then he writes, Venira. This has nothing at all to do with any of the voice-activated speech, touch, movement, walking, whatever it is, all of these technologies that we have today. There's an obvious distinction to be drawn. Everything that we're describing before is talking about a person who's doing a malacha in a supernatural way. There's a strong argument to be made that that is not called a malacha at all. That is the Ribbona Shalom doing it. It's not me doing anything at all. But when we create a mechanism, when we make a technology, then when I activate that system, when I talk to Alexa, or when I walk in front of the camera, or when I blink at the screen, or whatever it is that I'm doing, that is considered to be a malacha. Why? Because that is not God stepping in and doing something. That is a direct interaction between myself and the technology. That is a direct reaction, a direct response to everything that I am doing. And we all understand it. And as a result of that, we say that this would not be at all the same as any of the examples we gave leading up to this point. Because all of those, by the Man and by the Ur and by all these other cases, Rashi and Sanhedrin, Loksh and Lachishos, when we're talking about killing animals on Shabbos or anything like that, creating a person through Sefer Yitzira, all of that is supernatural. When we're talking about something like that, that has no bearing on our discussion here where we have a clear cause and effect that is related between the individual, whatever activity that they're doing, and the outcome or the output of whatever it is that the technology responds. So let's assume for a minute that it's considered to be a malacha by talking, by walking, by blinking, by activating something. All of that, let's say, would be defined as a malacha on Shabbos. Now, let's change the case just a little bit. What would the halacha be if the activation of this malacha happened not because I walked and not because I talked and not because I blinked and not because I did anything, but rather because I simply thought about it. Now, how can that be? How can something happen because I simply put my mind to it? That's not the way our world works. The answer is it is the way our world works because if you've never heard of BCI technology, you'll look it up and you will see that there is something that is fairly new, which is that a chip can be inserted into someone's brain. Didn't Elon Musk just, just do this with the first person, right? I don't know what he called it, not BCI. What? Neuralink. Neuralink? So we just had this a few weeks ago in the news where they implanted a chip into someone's brain and it created a direct communication pathway between my brain waves and an external device. Now, they've already been doing this before Elon Musk came up with this idea. They did this before when they had a... 
when they had somebody who needed a, um, a prosthetic limb. So let's say somebody needed a prosthetic arm or a prosthetic leg. They put a chip into the person's brain and whatever the brain normally used to think to tell my arm to move like this, to move like that, now all of those thoughts are able to be transferred into the device. And even though the device is external, we now say that my brain is able to communicate directly with that device. It's amazing. So the question then becomes, would that be permissible on Shabbos? What about the fact that you can now play a video game? So I would say it's definitely Zilzal Shabbos and it's a terrible thing to do to play video games on Shabbos, I get it. But I'm just saying technically for a moment, forgetting about those meta factors that we have always involved in the story on Shabbos. But here, just technically talking about a malacha on Shabbos, would that be defined as a malacha? When I'm looking at a screen, when I have a chip inside of my brain, and because of what I'm thinking, something is being activated on the screen. I'm playing a video game, not because I'm touching anything, not because I'm moving anything, not because I'm blinking, but simply because I'm thinking, I'm visualizing in my head where I want the car to go or where I want the game to move, in which direction. Would that be considered a malacha on Shabbos or perhaps not? Now here... The distinction is, I'm not doing anything. I am simply thinking. Is thinking considered to be a malacha on Shabbos? What do you say about that? You say no. Why not? Um, I just think that's the example of like the arm and like that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So this is a major question. Can this be defined as a malacha on Shabbos or not? So there's a very fascinating discussion in the Nemuka Yosef, one of the Rishonim, in Mesechas Babakama. Nemuka Yosef talks about the following case. He writes, let's say, Hidlik Eish. The Gemara talks about this case. It's a machlokes Rabbi Yochanan Reish Lakish. If I am in my field, this, all, this whole area of land belongs to me. I'm sitting in my own property, I'm minding my own business, I'm doing my own thing. Now I decide, let me have some fun. I have a big stack of hay in the middle of my field. I light the hay on fire, and I'm watching it. Suddenly, a wind comes and blows the fire way out of my field, and it then jumps over the fence into your field and burns down your property. So, am I responsible or not? You say yes. You're not sure. Coming from Wind City. So what do you say? It's your property. You own it. I own it. So is that true? So let's say a brick falls off of my house, out of nowhere, lands in the middle of the street on someone's windshield, smashes the windshield. The brick belongs to me, but I didn't do anything. So just because I own something, that means I'm responsible for anything that happens with that item. So if somebody takes my computer and smashes it through this window here. It breaks my computer and the window. Am I responsible to pay for the window because my computer broke the window? Answer that is of course not, right? So what does that mean? Just the fact that I own something is not a reason why I should be responsible. So again, what are we talking about? The Gemara says, if you're talking about a Ruach She'en I live in a city where there's never any wind. 
and I'm being very responsible and I'm standing around this little fire with a fire extinguisher and I'm doing everything the right way. And all of a sudden, a hurricane comes out of nowhere, picks up the fire and brings it to the next house. Of course, I'm not responsible for that because how should I have ever known to expect such a thing? What are we talking about? You live in a normal community where sometimes it's windy, sometimes it's not. You never know what's going to be. And then it goes and it spreads to the neighbor. So I am responsible to pay. The question the Gemara wants to know is why? Why am I responsible to pay? So the Gemara says, because perhaps there's a machlokas or Yofna Mishlokish, exactly why, and those specifics of the details of why don't really matter. But the Gemara basically says, from the time that I lit the fire, of Yochanan says, it's the same as shooting an arrow. So I shoot, nowadays we don't shoot an arrow, we shoot a gun. So what would you say? When I shot the gun, nothing happened. Oh, it took till it got across the street and hit somebody, that's when a problem happened. But right now, when I, when I pulled the trigger, nothing happened at all, so maybe I shouldn't be responsible. That's ridiculous. Why? Why is it ridiculous? Because he pulled the trigger, and everybody knows what happens when you pull the trigger. It's going to go somewhere. It's going to do something. So from the moment you pull the trigger, it's already considered like you started the damage then. The nafkamina, the nafkamina means what would be the test case for us to know whether it's considered my action or not. Let's say, for example, a strange case, somebody pulls the trigger and then they drop dead. You know, every, every this is not, I don't mean to compare two things, but every summer in Camp Simcha, they have one day, they have a lot of strange things that they do in Camp Simcha, like cool activities, unusual things that camps don't do. So they have a shooting range one day. And the therapists all feel that this is good for the kids who are going through chemo and whatever to get out all their frustration and whatever. So they invite me every year to go to the, they bring the shooting range to camp. They have these rifles and these things and whatever. So every year they invite me to come that I should go and shoot with these guns. I did it once. I was so sore. I don't know how these soldiers fight in the army and do this all day. Bless you. I don't know how this works. But I was so like in shock when I shot, when I pulled the trigger. It's not for me. Whatever. I, I, if I lived in Israel, I wouldn't fight in the army. It's not my kind of thing. I just don't know how to do it. And I don't know how the Chayalim aren't scared. So the question is, let's say somebody's in so much shock from shooting the gun the first time and they just dropped it. So, when the damage actually happened, they were no longer alive. So am I responsible to pay? Can you take a lien on my assets because I damaged somebody's property? Or would you say, what do you mean? The damage happened when I'm no longer alive. It's not relevant. The answer, says Rabbi Yochanan, is no. From the moment you pull the trigger, the damage already happened because there was no way of stopping the bullet. So from the moment you pull the trigger, you're already responsible for what you did. It's as if the damage happened the second you pull the trigger, even if it takes 10 seconds to get to the place where it needs to get to, and I'm no longer alive at that moment. It doesn't make a difference. Right now, the moment you lit it, right now, the moment you pull the trigger, it's already a problem. Ask the Nemuke Yosef, how is this a problem every Shabbos? New, think about it. What's the problem? What's the problem? What's the problem? What do we do every Shabbos? What? Shabbos clocks in my next class. What do we do every Shabbos? Before Shabbos clocks. What? Light candles. Erev Shabbos, we light candles in all of our homes. What happens naturally when you light a candle? It keeps burning. Unless someone puts it out. Isn't that the same as a gun? So that means every moment that it keeps burning is considered like I'm continuing to do something. It's still connected to me. Says the Nukayosa, just like the gun. The moment I pull the trigger, everything that happens subsequently is connected back to me over and over and over again. 
So the question here is, how do we light Shabbos candles on Arab Shabbos when we know that every subsequent moment that the candles are going to be lit, that goes back to me and it's as if I am continuously damaging or lighting or doing or burning something which is not allowed on Shabbos. That's the question that the Muki Yosef asked. His answer is very technical, which we don't need to get into now because that's not the focus of our shir. However, the answer of Salavechik said for this question is very obvious. You cannot have a malacha on Shabbos without doing anything. The Torah says, Lo sase kol malacha. The only way to violate a malacha is if I'm involved in some kind of action, if I'm actually doing something. But here, where I'm not doing anything, I lit the candles on Arab Shabbos and now the whole thing is in motion on its own. I don't do anything. Once I lit the candles, it just keeps going on its own. That cannot be defined as a malacha. How can that be a malacha? That's not those sasukah malacha. I'm not doing anything. If I'm not doing anything, then there's no malacha. That was Rav Salavechik's big chiddush that he suggested, that if I don't actually have any involvement with some kind of action, that's not called a malacha. Take for another example. My father gives the following example. We have a malacha on Shabbos called Seda. What's the malacha of Seda? You're not allowed to trap an animal. Now, what does trapping an animal actually mean? So, let's say I have a dog, and I have some company over in the house, and the company doesn't appreciate the dog. So what do you do? The nice thing to do is to take the dog out of the way, or to not invite the company, right? So what do you do? I don't like dogs. I do not like going to people's homes when I know a dog is going to be licking my pants. I just don't like it. It doesn't work for me. Some people think it's very cute. I can't stand it. Not my thing. Which is fine. Just don't invite me. It's okay. Right? So, what do I do? I lock the dog in a room. Right? Is that called trapping an animal on Shabbos? Yes? Maybe? Big question. Seems like it, right? Well, it depends. No, you don't think so. Why? Like okay. Great question. So a squirrel. Let's use a squirrel example for a minute. Squirrel runs into the house. Nobody wants a squirrel there. What do we do? Of course, the Rafs have a special squirrel trapper on Shabbos, and they quickly run to go catch it and put it in its cage. That would be a malach on Shabbos, without any doubt. Now, the Gemara gives the following case. Let's say to make things much more exciting, squirrels are a little boring, we see them all the time. What if I have a deer runs into the house? So this is very exciting. So I have a deer in the house. I don't want to lose the deer. I want that after Shabbos, I should be able to do something with it, right? Hang it up on the wall, I don't know, do something. So how am I going to make sure that the deer stays in my house? So I slam the door. Is that called the Malach Seda? You can guess even though the deer can still run around from one room to another room. Why is it called Seda? No, let's say he runs in the front door and now I shut the front door. Answer is because a deer normally roams around everywhere and now you're limiting it to be only in a very confined space. So that would be considered to be a Malachat Seda. Okay, fine. Says the Gemara, what happens in the following case? What if I have the deer runs into the house 
and I don't close the door, but I put a chair right in front of it, and I sit on the chair. So now I am blocking the door. The deer cannot get past me. Is that considered malachat seda, or it's only if I close the door? What do you say? Okay, you don't have to like animals, what? I don't know. What do you think? Malach Abseda? Sure, meaning, instead of closing the door, I basically close the door with myself. So that's called a malacha. That's called Seda. Good? So far, so good. Now change the case. Deer runs into the house. There's no door. I put my chair down and I sit right at the front of the house so that the deer can't go out. I violate Seda. My wife feels bad that I'm going to have to sit here for the rest of Shabbos. She doesn't want me to be alone. So she comes and puts a chair right next to me. And she says, you know, why don't we have a nice Shabbos here guarding the door? So is she in violation of Tzedah? The door was blocked without her. She's not adding anything. So is she in violation of Tzedah or not? Acheli says no. Why not? She's not doing anything because I'm doing everything. I'm blocking the door before she came here. The deer couldn't get out anyway. So she's not doing a thing. Okay, now we're sitting there. Five hours into my Shmirah, I have to go to the bathroom. So I get up and I leave. And now my wife is sitting there alone. Now who's blocking the doorway? It's not a trick question. Who's blocking the doorway? She is. So would you say she's violating Seda? That's why I'm asking it. <laughs> now, what do you say? I don't know if it's about the complete in the first place or if every second that you have. That's the question. That's exactly the question. Mm-hmm. So the Mishnah says in Masech Shabbos, in such a case, if I was the one blocking the door, then someone else came to sit next to me who was not helpful of blocking the door because everything was done by me alone. Then I leave, and now the second person is left there they would not be in violation of the Malach of Tzedah. Why not? The answer is because, my father says, because you can't violate a Malach of al I didn't do anything. At the time that I sat down, I didn't do a thing. Nothing happened. I, later on, it turns out that the circumstances changed and now I'm left there alone. That doesn't matter. That's not called a Malacha. Malacha has to be losasako Malacha. You have to do something to violate a Malacha. But here... I didn't do anything. At the time that I did something, nothing happened. I, later on, it turns out, I am the only one standing and blocking the door. The answer is, that doesn't make a difference. That's not defined as a malacha. Something is happening because of me, but I didn't do anything to make that happen. At the time that I sat down, I was not in violation of a malacha. And a malacha cannot be violated and because of that, my father is of the opinion, he feels very strongly, that because of that, we would say that it is impossible to ever have a malacha on Shabbos violated b'sheva al-tasa. And as a result of that, when we talk about the potential of BCI technology on Shabbos, we would say that, yes, of course, playing video games on Shabbos would not be appropriate. It would be a zilzal Shabbos. It wouldn't be the spirit of Shabbos, all the other things. But in terms of a technical violation of a malacha on Shabbos, we would probably say that that is not considered to be a violation because, after all, I'm not actually doing anything. All I'm doing is thinking. Now, if I'm walking in front of a video camera, then I'm doing a malacha. If I'm staring at a screen and blinking at it and it's picking up some activity that I'm doing and responding because of that, that's called some kind of malacha. It's an unusual malacha, but that's a malacha. 
But here, where I'm not doing anything, and all that's being, all that's happening is I'm thinking, and as a result of my thoughts, there is some kind of reaction that's taking place. That would not be defined as a malach at all. We're going to close with this, but I, uh, I would just ask you to think a little bit about the following. If that is true, what would be the halacha? Let's say if I put something on, bless you. If I put something up for auction, and Either I put something up for auction online or I put in a bid online and the bid is going to end on Shabbos. Would I be allowed to do that, right? Sometimes you have three days, a three-day window when you can put something up for auction. Amanda, how does it work? I can pick which day of the week I want it to end or not always. Depends on the site, I assume. So let's say I put something up and it says a three-day window. It has to end on Saturday, which means that the transaction is going to go through on Shabbos afternoon. Once the auction is completed, again, I don't have to do anything then. I probably have to confirm after Shabbos is over. But once the auction is completed, whoever the highest bidder is, the transaction is going to happen. They get it. So would I be allowed to set up a system where that is going to happen on its own on Shabbos itself? Or would you say, no, that's conducting business on Shabbos. And we know you're not allowed to violate Mecca Memkar. You're not allowed to have transactions happening on Shabbos. So what would we say about that? Is that called a malacha on Shabbos or perhaps not? Maybe that should follow all of these rules where we generally would say there's no such thing as a malacha b'shev al-tasa or perhaps there's something else to think about there. Now you'll say, why would we even get into the issue if after all, just let the auction end on Sunday? Well, that's very nice, but sometimes I am the purchaser and I want to buy this item and the auction is going to end on Shabbos. Can I even put in a bid when I know that the transaction on my credit card is going to go through on Shabbos. Can you create a bot that will bid for you on Shabbos? I'll tell you this, Rabbi Kiva Eger never heard of bots, right? <laughs> so can you create a bot that what will happen? That will, like, let's say it's, you bid before Shabbos and someone beats your bid and then they're going to get the item. Can you create a bot that will re-bid so you get the highest bid? Same question. Yeah. Can uh, you set up... Even more so. Yeah, so it's a very interesting question. The Magan Avram discusses what happens if you have to do a Pidin Aben by show of hands. Anybody know? Not show of hands. What day do you do a Pidin Aben? Wrong. What day do you do a Pidin Aben? Everyone says day 30. It's not correct. It's Yom Lamed Aleph. It's after the child is 30 days old. We do it on the 31st day. Mirza Shemai, all of you. Any of you are daughters of Levim or Kohanim? So, Mirza Shem, not by you. You don't do Pidin Aben, but you should have healthy children. It doesn't have to be a boy. It could be a girl. All things are great. Everyone should be well. But, what? Everyone else should have healthy children also. It's all great. But the question is, let's say you have the firstborn child is a, is a boy. And by the way, Pidin Aben is a very rare mitzvah because it has to be that the child was born naturally. So we had a very interesting uh, thing when my wife was expecting our first. So... Um, so anyway, she, like sometimes in the middle of a labor, things get very exciting in the hospital and they get very nervous and the blood pressure drops or goes up, goes down. And like, whatever, everyone rushes into the room. We got to figure this out quickly. Emergency C-section out. Anyway, so Baruch Hashem, we never had that. But our first child, as the, um, as the labor and delivery was, was underway, so there was some kind of concern. And there was a very old school doctor who said, oh, the way we always took care of this is we use forceps which are very rarely used by doctors today, by uh, gynecologists today, but that is, what, that is what he wanted to use, which is like, sound, it is exactly what it sounds like. It's like putting in like tongs and they like take the baby out. It's like very, 
Very strange. Um, right? Forceps. That's it's exactly what it sounds like. So anyway, we had the baby. My wife is feeling well. My parents come to visit us. So that night, my father walks in. Of course, his first question is about Pidin Aben. Not like how big is the baby, not like anything. Pidin Aben. And he's busy right away. The rugged shover has a whole discussion whether you're allowed to do Pidin Aben with the babies of forceps. Oh, I'm like, Daddy, my wife is a boss lady anyway. Like, there's no, there's no Shiloh here. Whatever. He was very relieved. But the question is, what happens if Yom Lamed Aleph falls out on Shabbos? What happens if Yom Lamed Aleph falls out on Shabbos? So what do you do? So what do you say? Well, what does the Pidin Aben entail? Transaction. I have to give money to the Kohen to redeem my son. So am I allowed to do that on Shabbos? Now, of course, I'm not allowed to do that on Shabbos because I'm not allowed to make a transaction on Shabbos. So the question that the Achronim raises, the Chumas Hadeshan wonders, maybe I can give the money to the Kohen before Shabbos, and I could say this will go into effect tomorrow at 2 o'clock in the afternoon once it comes the right time to do the Pidin Aben, and that's fine. Nothing has to happen. I do everything before Shabbos begins, and then the Kenyan goes into effect after Shabbos already sets in. Does that work? Is that permissible? Truma Sadashan writes, the problem is, if you're going to do that, then you can't make the bracha on Pinyon Aben. Why can't you make the bracha? Because the only time you make a bracha is when you're doing a Maisa HaMitzvah, when I'm actually engaged in a mitzvah. But here, if I make the bracha on Friday, the mitzvah is not happening now. Why? Because the child is not old enough to have a Pinyon Aben. If I do the mitzvah on Shabbos, I'm not allowed to do the transaction on Shabbos. I can't give the money. So therefore, the Chumash Adeshin says, that's why we don't do Pidin Aben on Shabbos, because you're going to lose out the opportunity to make the bracha on Pidin Aben. So therefore, we wait till Matzah Shabbos or Sunday morning, different and hugging what we do. So Rabbi Kivager asks, why does the Chumash Adeshin skip the most obvious point? Why do you say the reason we don't do Pidin Aben on Shabbos is because we're worried about the bracha you're going to miss out? What about the fact that you can't make a transaction on Shabbos. What about the fact that I can't give the money on Shabbos? Answer is, there's a way around it. How is there a way around it? Give the money before Shabbos, that it should go into effect on Shabbos. We have this problem this year. We have this problem this year because I think Erev Pesach falls out on Shabbos this year. Is that correct? Not correct? No? Okay. Did we have this in the last couple of years? Erev Pesach fell out on Shabbos? Three years ago. Erev Pesach that falls out on Erev Shabbos is very complicated. Because when are you going to eat the three meals that you have to eat on Shabbos, but you're not allowed to eat on Erev Pesach after a certain time, you're not allowed to have chametz, you can't have matzah, your house is clean. What are you going to eat? How are you going to wash? How are you going to bench? What are you going to do? How are you going to do the beer chametz? You can't burn the chametz on on Shabbos. Eh, All these questions, all these problems. Okay. What about selling the chametz? When do I sell the chametz? The answer is, sell the chametz before Shabbos, correct? Yeah, but the problem is, let's say I want to have my breakfast Shabbos morning, the Cheerios, right? Racheli, needs her Cheerios on Shabbos morning. What am I going to do? I only pick on the people in the front, so just <laughs> those in the back stick to the back. So the question is, what am I going to do without my Cheerios Shabbos morning? The answer is, really, you'll be fine. Really, you'll be fine. But... I won't be fine. So I want that the Mechiras Hamid should only go into effect at 10 o'clock Shabbos morning after I have my breakfast already. Is there a way to do that? Is there a way to do that? What? Oh, you're getting complicated. Let's just keep some... What? 
What? Put a condition in the contract. So what do I do? I sell the chametz to a non-Jew on Erev Shabbos and I stipulate that this only goes into effect on Shabbos at 10.15 in the morning. Until that time, everyone's allowed to use their chametz, everyone's allowed to do whatever they want, and then it's going to be sold. Does that work? Are you allowed to do that? The transaction is happening on Shabbos, but all of the paperwork and all of the transactions actually happen beforehand. All of the technical parts of it happen before. So these are major, major questions that are dealt with in the Acharonim. And the question really comes down to this, this very important point, And that is, is it possible to violate something on Shabbos without doing anything at all? What is the most obvious Isser on Shabbos that is violated unequivocally without doing a single thing? Anybody know? And this is going to be, we don't have time to get into it, but this is a major question on everything, why this is the anomaly. What is the one place where you violate something on Shabbos without anyone who disagrees? Everyone is in agreement that you're going to violate Shabbos if you do this, even though I'm not doing a single thing. What? No, Hotzah, I'm doing something. Hotzah, I'm carrying. Go through all the malachas and think for yourself. What? What? Planning. I'm talking. We say in this mirrors, Hirhurim mutarim. Right, you're allowed to think about what you're going to do after Shabbos. You shouldn't talk about it. So talking about it is not right. What? Zoreya meaning planting. Okay, but I'm doing an action, so I'm doing something. Right, that's why. So where is it that I'm doing something on Shabbos that I'm actually not doing anything? Literally, not doing a single thing, but I'm violating the laws of Shabbos by doing nothing. Baking, how can baking be? I take something, I put it in a pan, I put the pan in the oven. That's doing something. Baking before Shabbos. Uh, so let me give you a little example. Shehia. It's called Shehia. The prohibition on Shabbos of Shehia means if I leave a fire on on Shabbos, exactly what you just said. Forget baking for a second. Let's say I leave the fire on, the stove on. I put something up to cook without a blech, without anything. So we say you're in violation of Shehia. I'm leaving something on the flame. But how can I violate anything when I didn't do anything? All of the activities were performed before Shabbos. Fire was turned on before Shabbos. The pot was put on the fire before Shabbos. All the ingredients were added before Shabbos. I don't stir it. I don't anything. Just by leaving something directly on the fire or in the oven on Shabbos, I am in violation of the Isser of Shehia on Shabbos. How is that possible? Doesn't that go against everything we just spoke about? that normally you cannot violate a malacha on Shabbos, you cannot violate an Isra on Shabbos, b'shev al-tasa, without doing anything. And here, it seems unequivocally clear in all the poskim, across the spectrum, svardim and Ashkenazim, everyone agrees that you are in violation of Shehiyah on Shabbos by doing absolutely nothing. That is an amazing question that we don't have enough time to talk about, but something for you to think about and talk about at your Shabbos table this week. Amir Tzashem, everyone should have a wonderful Shabbos, and we'll see you all next week on Tuesday.